Right, we want to get back to the story involving the ACLU and Rhode Island Legal Services teaming up to sue the Providence Public School District. It all involves access to records involving English learning students. And this stems from a DOJ report showing that the district didn't provide the required services to those students. ABC6 News reporter Brittany Comack has the details. Lawyers with the ACLU and Rhode Island Legal Services filing a lawsuit against the city of Providence, the school district, and the city solicitor Thursday, trying to access a document relating to last year's Department of Justice report on the schools. If there was nothing important in there, they would have given us the documents. The school district agreed to a settlement last August with the DOJ, which said they violated the Equal Education Opportunities Act of 1974 because they didn't provide the necessary ESL education to hundreds of students. Since then, lawyer for the ACLU Ellen Sademan tells me Rhode Island Legal Services continues to be denied access to documents related to that report. The more information we have about the problem, the better we are able to assess whether Providence is making an appropriate response to these problems. City Council President Sabina Matos agrees, especially in light of the recent Johns Hopkins report on the Providence school system, which, according to the ACLU, also indicated issues with ESL programs. She herself has also been denied access to this document. That is crucial information. When you have the Department of Justice coming to us and telling us that we are not doing our job when it comes to um, educating English language learner, that is, that is huge, especially with the population that we have in our school system. The clientele is changing dramatically. The workforce is not. The administration has decided to empower the same people, structures, and systems that caused harm to people of color in the first place. Knowing that they might experience trauma as a professional. We do hear some really specific examples of racism in the schools. Is, is, is this an emergency? This is not going to be easy. If you take the people that have made change, they didn't cry at night, didn't feel lonely, identify, ostracized, that's not true. Change doesn't happen without a little bit of pain. Plant those seeds and become those teacher encouragers. If you love this profession, be a teacher encourager. I am a Teach Plus Rhode Island policy fellow. Teach Plus Rhode Island. And I'm a Teach Plus Rhode Island policy fellow. I'm a Teach Plus Rhode Island policy fellow. I'm a Teach Plus Rhode Island. Hi, my name is Anthony Francisco, and I'm a Teach Plus Rhode Island policy fellow. You know, I am a descendant of Edward Doty, who came over on the Mayflower two, uh, 400 years ago to seek religious uh, freedom. And my grandmother, Olive Watkins, who was born in uh, south of Seattle, Washington, uh, she uh, married an Italo-American. My great-grandfather came to this country in 1906. His, uh, his father, Stanislaw uh, Sorello, or Cirello, allowed him as an adolescent to come to the United States to, to seek a, a new life, uh, a better life. And my father, he came from the Dominican Republic in 1968. So I am, I consider myself a true American, someone who is multi, uh, multilingual capacity. I speak Spanish, I speak Italian, and obviously uh, English. And so one of my passions is to advocate for the multilingual learner in Rhode Island. 
So there is a, a problem that in Rhode Island that we're trying to address. Uh, I belong to an organization called Rhode Island Foreign Language Association, or RIFLA, and we're trying to address the issue of multilingual education in Rhode Island. We're trying to expand the multilingual program that is uh, world language, dual language, bilingual education, so that all learners have the opportunity to achieve proficiency in English and, and at least one other language. One of the realities of, of, of our educational environment is uh, we have to educate the public and we try, we try to do this through a public relations sort of campaign. Uh, also, politics is part of it. One of the things that we're trying to do is trying to get the word out. And the public can follow us at RI Language and also hashtag Multilingual RI. We're trying to pass legislation. So we're trying to take these actionable steps that can be taken. Uh, we can create language education leadership position at RIDE. That'd probably be greatest achievements we could uh, achieve politically. person there could coordinate efforts through the passage of H7293, the World Language and Dual Language Immersion Act. That concludes the hearing on 7271. The next bill we're going to hear is by Representative Diaz. 7293, Education, the Whole Language and Dual Language Immersion Act. Representative Grace Diaz of the Capital City of Providence. Thank you, Mr. Ms. Uh, Chairman and members of the uh, Health, Education, and Welfare Committee. I understand the long hours of this committee because it's a very busy committee. And um, I'm so pleased to introduce the House Bill 7293, and it's a bill um, that opened the doors and given opportunity to the children in the state of Rhode Island to have access to more, um, um, the opportunity to learn another language. Um, I'm not expert to explain the bill, but my understanding of this bill that I have so much passion is the importance of giving children a good curriculum to learn another language. Oh, Paige. Good evening, Paige. Good Welcome. Evening. Please proceed. How are you all this evening? Um, thank you so much for the opportunity to provide testimony today. My name is Paige Colossus Park, Senior Policy Analyst at Rhode Island Kids Count. Rhode Island Kids Count strongly supports House Bill 7293. Uh, my written testimony shares a lot of information and data for you as so to why this bill is so important, but I'll share some of the highlights with you right now. Um, reading proficiency in third grade is a key predictor of school success and high school graduation. As of 2018, only 13% of multilingual learners or English learners are proficient in reading by third grade. Dual language bilingual programs can significantly improve English reading proficiency, decrease high school dropout rates, increase the likelihood of going to college, and improve economic outcomes for multilingual learners. Uh, as Representative Diaz already highlighted and stated, the majority of the world's population is bilingual or multilingual. 
um, high quality dual language bilingual programs starting in the early grades or in preschool even, effectively promote English language acquisition and proficiency also building in a child's native language as we just discussed in our last testimony. Being bilingual is associated with increased economic and social opportunities and improved executive functioning for children. In the 2017-18 school year, multilingual learners were 9% of the total student population and 34% of multilingual learner students were in grades preschool to grade three. Uh, so during the 17-18 school year as well, there were bilingual and two-way dual language programs in Central Falls, the wonderful school district of Pawtucket, South Kingston, Providence, and um, the Rhode Island, Rhode Island School for the Deaf and the International Charter School. Fifteen seconds. Sure. So we highly support any efforts to expand programs that will offer dual language and bilingual programs in Rhode Island schools. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Andre? Uh, as well as dual language program grant uh, that would help districts with startup costs. Um, meaning uh, new curriculum materials in the partner language. You know, in Rhode Island, we have at least 76 to 80 you know, languages uh, where a significant group of people uh, speak. And in uh, and, and Providence, for example, is over 100 languages. And so the second thing we're trying to do is create a statewide effort for preparing multilingual educators across grade levels and content areas. Of course, uh, with financial support, we have many multilingual professionals right here living in our state who could become teachers. So we wanna tap into that. The nation is uh, suffering a, a, a teacher, a highly qualified teacher shortage. Uh, that's a national issue, but uh, we know that uh, education agencies, uh, state education agencies are moving uh, heaven and earth to try to uh, tap into people who are have the skills. Uh, they have the, the knowledge and the skills and to get them uh, recertified, uh, get them certified uh, and to bring them into uh, public education. We need to encourage students to maintain and develop their own home languages. I know as a, as a teacher uh, that my classrooms were filled with uh, students that spoke many different languages. If we can develop their home languages, also understand that it's possible to learn multiple languages simultaneously, uh, advocate for expansion of uh, dual language and world language programs. Uh, that is, you know, we could create pathways for students to uh, learn languages for as long as possible, ideally uh, K through K to college. I think that's a fees. I think that's an, a noble goal. I think that's a it's a goal that is definitely achievable here in Rhode Island. I'd, I'd really like to um, give credit to Dr. Aaron Papa uh, from Rhode Island College, who uh, is part of the Rhode Island Foreign Language Association, who has been the leader in this initiative. Thank you. 
Representative Diaz for taking the leadership on this bill. My name is Erin Papa and I am um, a resident of Providence, a lifelong Rhode Islander, um, and I'm also an assistant professor of educational studies and world languages education at Rhode Island College, so I now direct the teacher preparation program for world language teachers. Um, this bill, Bill um, 7293, we, we urge you to support, is the World Language and Dual Language Immersion Act. Um, and as Representative Diaz said, it would help us to establish a dual language program fund and a position at RIDE. Um, we've made great strides in the last um, almost decade. Um, I know Representative McNamara joined us a few years ago when we had visitors here from Utah who really pushed, do you remember that now? <laughs> um, they, they had a, um, I remember. a Senate bill that uh, created a statewide yeah. dual language program and they now have over 100 dual language programs in their state in a variety of different languages. Um, and we know from the research that dual language and world language education um, is beneficial for all learners, um, particularly for multilingual learners, emergent bilinguals, or as we often call them, English learners. Um, dual language is the best program model for those students, um, particularly when um, their home language is one of the languages being taught, but not necessarily, it could be another language as well. Um, so we, we have a plan in place to expand these programs since we launched the Rhode Island Roadmap to Language Excellence in 2012, which was a, state of, uh, a set of recommendations that we put together with leaders from business, government, and education. Um, this is one of the main recommendations f uh, of that document. Um, we've had an expansion of dual language programs in some districts in the state. South Kingston has a new program. Pawtucket, Providence has expanded. But what we lack is state-level support and coordination of these efforts. So we're asking for a small amount of money to establish a position at RIDE that can lead and coordinate this and a, um, a fund for districts to apply for funds to expand their programs. RIFLA, for example, uh, we're going to be connecting communities through languages on September 26th, 2020. And so what we're doing is we're calling for proposals. And um, she, Erin Papa, she is basically the leader of the Coalition for Multilingual Rhode Island. And so this is part of the solution. Their mission, or our mission, is uh, we're a coalition of organizations and community members dedicated to creating a culturally sustaining educational environment where all Rhode Island students learn in multiple languages from pre-K to college. And I can speak uh, about the effectiveness of that as my children, they, they started off in bilingual education and it really had an impact even in their, in their, in their native uh, tongue, uh, uh, um, native tongues, I should say, uh, English and Spanish. So when they got to school and the majority of their coursework was in English, they were able to use the, the Spanish language also to, to try to help them to problem solve, to find out also what uh, the meaning of the text was. And, and let me just mention the vision also of the Coalition for a Multilingual Rhode Island. We envision uh, a Rhode Island public school system where all students have access to dual language programs and the opportunity to learn in multiple languages. That is uh, spoken, signed, and classical. And that's, again, we want to stop that from pre-K possibly, or at least afford it to the students from pre-K to college. 
And we envision a future where every English speaker, uh, speaking child learns a second language from preschool on. And every English learner learns English while attaining full literacy in their native language. So in essence, we hope to see Rhode Island that is the first truly multilingual state. So uh, my name is Flavia Mulea-Baker. I'm the Multilingual Learners Program Coordinator at the Rhode Island Department of Education. I came into education when I came here to the US. I'm originally from Italy and I am a multilingual learner myself. Um, I grew up in different countries and actually English, I think, is my fifth language in order of acquisition. So I've been using several languages and in Europe, this is something pretty common. Upon coming here to the US, I started a new career as a teacher educator and um, I began with a uh, alternative route for um, certification. Uh, my first summer assignment was teaching a central for the summer school with multilingual learners. And that was my first big realization of the system supporting multilingual learners in um, Rhode Island. Uh, it was a little bit of a culture shock from what I was used to. But that gave me the, really the, the vibe and the passion of wanting to do more. So I obtained my English um, language arts certification and I went back to college for a second master's degree to obtain my multilingual learner certification. So what I have noticed in Rhode Island from personal experience as a multilingual learner, um, going back to school here in the US and as a teacher in the classroom with my students, our multilingual learners have always been um, left out of the general conversation. We see a lot of high absenteeism. We, we see low grade graduation rate. Um, we have received several reports um, lately that have been made public where there is a significant stress on the need and the urgency of supporting our multilingual learners and our teachers and administrators and the entire school community for a better um, outcome of our learners. So we are, I am very grateful for the commissioner that we have, um, Angelica Infante-Green. She has brought to the attention of everyone the need to support multilingual learners and students who are differently abled with the rationale that if you support language acquisition, you're actually supporting every student. Every student is learning English and every student is learning academic English. I think now the biggest project we're working on is the Multilingual Learners Blueprint. So a system in Rhode Island to pivot what we have as an educational system towards practices and student-centered practices that are created and uh, vetted and intentionally uh, put into paper and are clear and practical for everyone in the educational system in order to then actually start to shift and move towards um, a change. The, this process is um, driven by research and data, 
And for the first time in Rhode Island, we actually have been dissecting the multilingual learners data into um, looking at the groups and subgroups, something that we have never done before because we have always compared current multilingual learners with never else, so never multilingual learners. So it is clear that by this binary com um, comparison, we are not comparing similar groups. So we have been uh, using um, additional subgroups of how we are looking at multilingual learners and how they are doing compared to never else in all the categories. So we are, have been looking at performance, we've been looking at graduation, um, absenteeism, uh, we looked at advanced placement, and in this process, we are learning that there is so much more we need to do, and um, the so much more really involves everybody. For too long, it has been a conversation of the multilingual learner specialist or teacher is responsible for the students only, um, where yes, and also anyone else is responsible for multilingual learners. So we are trying with a blueprint to start build a mindset of shared responsibility. At the end of the process, we're going to have principles, we're going to have a vision, and we're going to have a theory of action that will drive our implementation plan. In all this, we're also going to look at what is Rhode Island high quality instructional, instructional framework for multilingual learners, something that we have never had, we, we never had, and we never actually had the time to sit down and think what does success look like for multilingual learners. So this is part of the process. The, the blueprint is a five-year progress process, um, if not more. So we are really at the very, very initial stages. We need to change the system. We need to shift practices that are not working. We need to identify practices and policies that are holding on the progress of our students or our teachers. And we need to define out of this setting the expectation work, let's call it, um, what it is that within policies and regulations we need to do to make sure that it's happening. And our vision as of now in its draft forms um, is presenting a multilingual learner who is on par with their peers, who have opportunities to learn, who have access, who are ready to uh, work in a global society, and a multilingual learner who draws on their home language culture. And so we're also looking at expansions of dual language programs that are um, by research um, seen as very effective. And those are the only few programs that Rhode Island um, does not have very much representation of. So that is going to be another um, move towards um, the next step. So what are the programs that are effective and work for multilingual learners? And um, how are they connected to research? What is the data telling us? And ultimately, what teachers and student outcomes we want to see. 
Teach Plus has collaborated with us in um, the focus group. So we were able to listen the voices of educators who might not be MLL specialists and what is their, their view of the system as of now and what is their take on what is happening in the classroom. So that was very, very helpful because general educators, every, every general educator has multilingual learners in the, their classrooms. What is different is that very often the general educator hasn't been trained to support multilingual learners. So there's a, a sense of not knowing what to do, but with all the best intentions. And so this is also influencing our uh, next step in making sure that everybody has access to training um, and purposeful training to support our multilingual learners. We need to define what it is that we mean by using home language, what it is that we mean by cultural responsive education, and making sure that we are all addressing that question with the same understanding of what has been asked. And, um, and this is very difficult to, to do. For example, Rhode Island had took one full year to have a definition of curriculum. And this is because everybody has a different interpretation of what a curriculum is. When we are going to culturally responsive education and culture, there's a plethora of definitions and interpretations. And so at this point, what I'm really hoping the blueprint will set more in stone with uh, the principles and the vision is what do we mean when we are talking about success for multilingual learners? What is the instruction um, and the academic language that we are, that is high quality? And so all this process and the instructional tenants will ultimately provide something that will guide everybody in the field and remind us this, this was our vision, these are our principles, make sure that you are still following them because from now to next year, in five years or seven years, we need to make sure that unless we change the vision and the principles, we are still working um, with them in mind. Hi, my name is Dr. Stephen Levanti McNair. I'm an education specialist at the Rhode Island Department of Education. I've been at RIDE for the past three years and in education in multiple capacities over the last decade as a classroom teacher, instructional coach, and facilitator of adult learning. So a major component of my work over the past year has been to develop policy guidance for Rhode Island school districts related to the selection and implementation of high quality curriculum materials. So Rhode Island has had content standards in place for years now, but the materials that schools and districts use vary widely. And this is a, a concern about equity. And so what the state has done has made a push to consider how we can bring the state together through a vision of what high quality is so that we can provide every student with access to high quality curriculum materials, specifically starting with English language arts, math, and science um, within the, the implementation plan. I think traditionally, you know, I even remember this as a teacher that when you come into your classroom, you know, you're trained to develop lesson plans that meet the standards or align to the standards and you're given a set of materials that the school uses and they're like, okay, here you go, now go figure it out. 
And, you know, that's a big part of our profession is working through the materials we have to teach with our students. And so what ends up happening is there's been this paradigm that the materials were never current enough or they weren't comprehensive enough for multilingual learners or differently able students or just maybe a variety of student needs. And so what teachers started to do traditionally is supplement is you go to Pinterest or Teachers Pay Teachers or sites that have ready-made materials that claim to be, in many cases, aligned to the standards. Um, and I say claim because there, there hasn't been a rigorous process to ensure that those materials are actually aligned to grade level standards. And what's happened over time is every time a teacher supplements with materials with good intention to meet their students' needs, it increases the variability of instruction and actually impacts the coherence of a curriculum throughout their experience from K to 12 education. Every time a teacher supplements differently from a teacher next to them over time, that has an additive effect and impact. So what we're trying to do is message that we need to have a paradigm shift. How can we ensure that the curriculum materials that districts are selecting and putting in front of teachers and students are the core materials, everything that they need, at least as far as they, they can you know, ensure that, so that teachers can spend less time supplementing or finding things that they think they need to meet their students' needs. By having a core, high-quality curriculum from the beginning, teachers can spend less time supplementing and more time planning how to maneuver their instruction in a way that supports students. And so, and in other words, it's a shift away from finding materials to teach with to spending time thinking about how to teach with high quality materials more thoughtfully. And so I think that's the shift that will take place over time. It's going to be a systemic shift. And so that's like moving the Titanic, you know, sort of, um, it takes a long time to steer a ship. And thinking about systems change in that way, what we're trying to do is, is support the steps along the way to help districts and ultimately teachers make that shift over time. The specific component of this larger body of work that I shared with Teach Plus is the need to review high quality curriculum materials in those content areas for culturally responsive and sustaining education, or CRSE as we call it for short. So this is ultimately a process that states across the nation are just starting to invest time and money into developing this work. So it's very new in the education landscape, but it's extremely necessary. So high quality curriculum materials promulgate messages about who and what is valued in society. And so though historically publishers have not taken notice or time to notice which messages are sent to students through the material. So we could really ask some big questions in this process about how are people in the text shown, described, or talked about? What types of decisions do authors use to depict people of different cultures? What type of language is used to describe people of particular cultures, genders, etc.? cetera? Um, and these questions really start to frame how we're unpacking what messages are sent through the materials that students are using. This has not traditionally been part of teacher preparation. Um, it wasn't for me. And I know that my doctoral research in this area just keeps pointing to the need to look at how we're selecting and using curriculum materials that send either implicit or explicit messages about who people are in society. So that's sort of a bigger picture of what we're talking about is a piece of selecting a high quality curriculum in a content area that we're specifically reviewing materials for these things. Curriculum materials have been chosen 
um, over the years for different reasons. There's typically a review cycle where districts and schools will go through um, a team-based review of materials. They bring in a publisher and the publisher, you know, tells them what may or may not be available and how aligned they are to the standards, depending on when those materials were adopted. And ultimately the, the district will make a decision based on what a good fit is for them, what's offered in the materials, and also um, how much it costs. It's extremely expensive. And so that's a big piece of considering how a curriculum would meet your local constraints in instructional needs. So there's a lot of things to balance in the process. And I think until now, there really hasn't been a strategic way to codify what a strong selection process looks like before then a district and school considers what strong implementation looks like. And this is what Rhode Island is doing for the first time. And it's a really exciting time to be able to provide that framework for all schools and districts to really have a similar way of making decisions that are good for their students and teachers. RIDE intends to publish policy guidance in June of 2020, which will set the stage for all Rhode Island school districts to select high quality curricula by 2023, if not already. So this is a legislative requirement set in 2019 by the General Assembly in Rhode Island. And in doing so, it set the stage for a statewide commitment to providing access to every student um, as urgently um, as we can, knowing that it's a major component of their educational experience. So part of the guidance that RIDE's putting out will include review tools and resources for teams of educators and administrators to review curriculum materials for the themes and concepts that are promulgated by the design and content of the materials themselves. So this is an intentional step in the selection process that I spoke about to adopt new curricula for this state and nationwide. And it's continually one of the areas of research that shows it's integral to ensure that students see diverse representations of identity, culture, and language, in addition to the ideas and the messages that are sent in the materials that they'll ultimately engage with each day. So at the same time, we're making a shift in what curriculum looks like, feels like, sounds like in practice. Rhode Island has also you know, been working through a shift in how we see and experience professional learning as embedded, sustained, and ongoing, that it's not a sit and get or a one and done. And so how do we see the two things coming together? Well, once you've gone through a comprehensive process to review and select a curriculum that meets the needs of your students and your instructional vision, the, the long-term work starts with a plan to support implementation through professional learning. And what that means is, how are the professional learning opportunities related to those curriculum materials and the instructional strategies that will ultimately yield the highest student outcomes for the vision that the school or district has in that content area. Now, the challenge is, traditionally, if we go back to how things have been done, you buy a curriculum, you pay for one or two days for someone from the publishing company to come out, they show you where all the stuff is, and they say, good luck, and we just kind of figure it out. What we're hoping to do moving forward is say, how can schools and districts, knowing that again, it's a financial implication, it's expensive to buy the professional learning that's sustained, how can we think about supporting districts and schools to create structures and time that allow educators, the, the practitioners who will do this work with, with coaches as they are available, to have time every week to unpack those curriculum materials, to look at student work thoughtfully, 
and have professional learning communities or PLCs that are sort of driving an ongoing conversation and process to understand the curriculum, but also really have it be responsive to how the students are progressing in that grade level. And so there's another systemic sort of shift, but that's one way to buffer the financial cost is we're not saying just go out and pay for an expert to do this for you or with you. We're saying, think about the structures that are working or aren't working that you could adjust at the same time as you're thinking about bringing a new curriculum. How can your teachers have more time to have um, space to do this thoughtfully? And, and we know that that too can be challenging because all of these things are changes. And with adaptive change comes frustration, the unknown, and all of the frustration and emotions within it. But that's truly how the work needs to start happening if we want to see improved outcomes. And I also think that one of the commitments educators have to make and administrators as well, is that everyone at all points in the career continuum have to see this work as integral to their professional responsibilities. This is a must, it's a non-negotiable. Nationally, we recognize that educators have not been prepared to review or use curriculum materials in this way. So what RIDE's committing to doing is working with educator preparation programs and local teams to support this work as it unfolds using the new guidance and tools over the next year and beyond. Additionally, if educators are provided space within the school day, they can also seek opportunities to engage in professional learning on the other topics that will help them before, during, and throughout this process. And some of those topics really should be, you know, thinking about implicit bias, intersectional identities, and, and looking at how the research on curriculum design requires us to think about how we make choices with our curriculum and instruction. It was really helpful for us to make a connection with Teach Plus because an important part of developing guidance and you know, tools as resources for our stakeholders is to actually engage with the stakeholders to learn what's happening now and how we can make sure that the documents and tools we're providing are user-friendly but also accessible and representative of what teachers need and building leaders and district leaders need to implement this work well. And so Teach Plus provided us a space to learn about the work that we're doing. And uh, many of the fellows stepped up and volunteered their time to engage with us and review drafts of the guidance document and the tools that will be frameworks for starting these important conversations for educators across Rhode Island. And we were grateful that um, we had really frank and candid conversations about what has been typically silent topics in education and so appreciated um, the openness you know on behalf of and for you know their feedback so that we could make sure that this work was really moving the needle forward and being uh, responsive itself um, and so we hope that there will be future opportunities to engage with the fellows in this way and um, that their response when they see the documents come out that they'll see themselves and their feedback represented in that work um, as a piece of what has been, you know, really almost a year's worth of development work that we've had at the agency, um, you know, towards publication. So it, it takes a long time, but, but we do hope that it is uh, a positive experience for them as it has been for us. Hi, my name is Carlin Howard and I am the Chief Impact Officer with uh, Equity Institute. One of our biggest main focuses at the Equity Institute is supporting 
educators and district leaders and infusing culture sponsored practices within their day-to-day uh, -day work. Um, a lot of our work has been guided by James Bank, Gloria Lass, and Billings, some of these big names in the education space who have been doing work on this for some, quite some time now. But the, you know, the big idea is that we were helping educators think more closely about how their actions may impact uh, people based on culture, identity, how do the things in the environment that they create may impact people based on culture and identity and the lens through which people see the world around them and how their own biases uh, impact the way they navigate the world. Um, at the end of the day, I think, you know, one of the big things that people feel about culture responsive teaching is that they want to figure out how you can um, build it into their teaching practice. They just don't know how. So we try to help folks build out that game plan and, and, and figure out how do they do that. And it really starts initially with a change in mindset. From there, it comes to about how do you change um, your practices? And then also about how do you even alter environments such as classrooms and school buildings so that they do uh, communicate a major focus on being inclusive uh, to students of all races, ethnicities, everything, right? Um, so it's more than just like a handy tool that you can pull out through your back pocket and more so a, a way of thinking, if you will, a way of approaching the classroom, having high expectations for students, uh, but also being willing to give high support and also seeing the humanness in every kid and seeing how you're connected to every student no matter what. Uh, that is the true essence to us, at least, and what culturally responsive teaching is. Uh, and there's so much research out there on the benefits and effectiveness of it, and even different approaches and frameworks in terms of how to accomplish it. Um, but for us, it's about this ideal of um, personalization, centering students' identities, thinking about your own identity as an educator, um, and also thinking about how do you um, drive outcomes in terms of learning and create authentic learning experiences for kids that incorporate different aspects of their identity and the community around them um, that both reflects who they are and also provides what we call windows. If you're familiar with Peggy McIntosh's windows and mirrors um, analogy, but also provides uh, windows to a greater world. Hi, my name is Raymond Steinmetz. I'm a Teach Plus Senior Policy Fellow. Thank you for listening to the Teach Plus podcast. Please join us next week as we discuss Rhode Island's efforts to fundamentally change the high school experience and how educators are using data to provide a personalized education experience. Look for new episodes every Friday on all major podcast platforms.